Welcome to 10 Minute Tech Calm. This is Ryan Weber at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, and I'm very excited about today's guest. My name is Katie Mack. I'm a theoretical cosmologist, which means that I study the universe from beginning to end, from the smallest to the largest scales. My focus is on dark matter and the early universe, and I also study the first galaxies. Dr. Mack is the author of The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking, with astrophysically speaking in parentheses. It's a book that charts the ways that the universe might end. And while it's certainly not a feel-good read, it's an interesting popularization of complicated astrophysics concepts. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring Dr. Mack on the podcast was because she is a scientist, an esteemed scientist, but also a writer who makes these complicated concepts accessible for her audience. So I asked her about how she does this, why she incorporates stories into her work, and what her writing process is. And I really enjoyed talking with her as both a writer and a scientist. I hope you enjoy the interview as well. I am very excited to have you on the podcast, Dr. Mack. Um, I really enjoyed reading The End of Everything, and I wanted to talk with you about your work as a writer, someone who makes these very, very complicated concepts accessible to a really wide audience, people like me who do not understand theoretical cosmology um, and don't study it. So I'm really interested in talking with you about that aspect of your work. I really enjoyed reading your book, and I noticed you have a lot of narratives, a lot of stories, a lot of yourself in the book. And I was hoping you could read just a quick passage for us towards the beginning of the book where you have this realization yourself about the end of the universe. So do you mind sharing that with us? Sure, sure. This is from the quantifying cosmic doom section. I remember vividly the moment that I found out that the universe might end at any second. I was sitting on Professor Finney's living room floor with the rest of my undergraduate astronomy class for our weekly dessert night while the professor sat in a chair with his three-year-old daughter on his lap. He explained that the sudden space-stretching expansion of the early universe, cosmic inflation, was still such a mystery that we don't have any idea why it started or why it ended, and we have no way of saying that it won't happen again right now. No assurance existed to tell us that a rapid, unsurvivable rending of space couldn't start right then in that living room while we innocently ate our cookies and drank our tea. I felt completely blindsided, as if I could no longer trust the solidity of the floor beneath me. Forever etched into my brain is the image of that little child sitting there, fidgeting obliviously in a suddenly unstable cosmos, while the professor gave a little smirk and moved on to another topic. Great. Thank you. That's a great passage. I love that, you know, as an opening for the book. And I wanted to talk with you, first of all, about that experience and that story and kind of why that was one of the moments that inspired you to study what you study. We can start there, and then I want to talk about the use of stories in your book. Um, but tell us sort of about the impact of that moment for you. Yeah, I mean, I, so I think that that was one of those moments where I kind of internalized the idea that these things that I was studying in class that are just you know equations and formulas and, and diagrams, that, that those corresponded to actual events in space, like actual things that happen to the universe. And I live in the universe. And I, I kind of just the first for the first time made that connection between, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm at a point in space time, space time is being uh, manipulated by these unimaginable forces, you know, dark energy and inflation and and the expansion. And, and I don't have any control over that, but I do live in it. <laughs> and I think that it just 
it, it was that moment where I just like, oh yeah, this is this is real. Like we re- we really know that this stuff happened, but we do not know why, and we have no control, and we have just enough knowledge to to be scared. <laughs> we don't have we we don't have enough to to do anything about it. And that really was a moment that that kind of shook me. That's interesting because as a scientist, you want that knowledge, but you also kind of envy the three year old who doesn't know, right? That the universe could rip apart, yeah, at any moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I mean, they don't know about death. They don't know about pain. They don't. They don't know that the universe is unstable. Like they don't know any of that. And that, <laughs> that sounds really nice sometimes. You have that gift and curse of knowledge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on another level, though, you you put this story in the book. You have a lot of stories in your book. What do you get out of including these kinds of narratives in a scientific text? I wanted to share with people how how this all makes me feel, you know. I wanted to acknowledge that this stuff is scary. I feel like I read a lot of scientific discussions where there's a complete disconnect between the emotional weight of these big existential questions and the scientific trivialities of like, you know, you know, how do we frame this equation? How do we test this data? Um, I mean, I had another experience, which I didn't put into the book, but I was on a similar line where I was, I was at a like astronomy morning tea and we were discussing some papers that just came out. And there was a paper about white dwarfs with polluted spectra. And what this means is that there's this a white dwarf, which is a remnant of a, of a dead star a remnant of a star like our sun. So our sun is going to someday be a white dwarf. And people were able to see in the spectral lines uh, in the light coming from that white dwarf that there were heavy elements on that white dwarf star. And those heavy elements could only be there because a planet was destroyed by the star. So the reason the reason those elements are there is because the star ate a planet. Like it, it's it's the smashed debris. Yeah, it's it's the the debris, the the guts of the planet splashed across the star, and that's what those spectral lines were. And and everybody's just talking about this, like, oh yeah, you know, that's interesting. And I'm like, that's gonna happen to us. <laughs> it's like the remnants of the planet. Yeah, the what's left of it. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm thinking about, you know, this white dwarf star, like that planet, like maybe there were people on it. I don't know. <laughs> like and and someday we're going to be, you know, we're, all that's left is, of us will be the pollution in the in the spectrum of a white dwarf. <laughs> And when that happened, I just like I looked around at my colleagues and nobody else was freaking out and I didn't understand. <laughs> just sort of passively studying the death of this planet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm a little oversensitive to this stuff, but I do feel like there are elements of, of these discussions that, that do affect people emotionally. And I want to recognize that and empathize with that. And, you know, it, it can help people to be engaged by the topic. I feel like if I'm, if I'm ever trying to explain to somebody how we learn about what we learn from spectral lines in white dwarf stars, you know, I'll tell that story and it'll be much more effective, right? Like, like people will re- remember and, and, and understand that topic a lot more if you, if you bring that personal element into it, you know, and because astrophysics and cosmology are not topics where, you know, there's an obvious human connection. A lot of times the human connection is just how we how we emotionally respond to the, the topic. You know, we do have feelings about the universe. Um, and I feel like bringing those to the forefront is is very effective way of, of kind of engaging people. Fantastic. And, you know, I feel a similar way in that 
you know, especially this is a popular press book that, you know, I saw actually our university had your book on display a couple weeks ago. But point being, people want to read this and they want to read it for some emotional whether it's just curiosity about the world or terror about the end of the universe, there's some sort of emotional motivation that got them to buy and pick up this book. Well, can you tell us a little bit about your writing process? Because you know, you're you are a scientist who also is a writer. What does the writing process look like for you? So I do a lot of different kinds of writing. I do have a regular column in BBC Science Focus magazine, and you know, like once a month or so, I, I write 800 words or so for them. For that, uh, my process is I kind of rack my brain for a topic to, to choose. And then I really don't have much of a process for that. I read a little bit about the topic and then I just kind of write from beginning to end. And then I go through several editing runs, but those are pretty short. Whereas the book, I had a, I had a particular process for the book and I hope I can replicate it for, for the next book, although I won't have exactly the same setup. So I had, I had this really wonderful setup when I was writing this book, which is that I lived about a mile from campus, from NC State, and I would walk to work. And it turned out that right across the street from the university, there's there's a wonderful little coffee shop called Jubala. And what I would do is I would walk to, to Jubala and I would sit there and I would order some tea and some oatmeal and I would write for half an hour or, or an hour or something like that, first thing in the morning. And then I would walk to my office. And so I work pretty well in cafes. I mean, these days I don't work in cafes because of the pandemic, but back in the day I, I did. And I, I like having you know people around and I like that kind of like ambient noise and the energy of, of being in a cafe. I just kind of wrote a little bit every day. And um, I, I did kind of pretty much go in order. I'd work, on, work, work through one chapter and then send it off to my editor and work through the next chapter. But that process of of coming back to it often enough that I never lost the thread of what I was talking about the previous day. You know, I could stop in the middle of a paragraph and pick it up the next the next day. Having that routine where I was constantly engaged in it, where I was in a sort of pleasant environment that wasn't my workplace, so I could I could feel like you know this is my little writing space. That really worked pretty well. Um, so I don't have a similar cafe here uh, now that I've moved. I need to find, you know, my writing space here. But, you know, I'd read all these advice pieces about how to be a writer and 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 all of them were like, right first thing in the morning. And I was like, I'm not a morning person. That's a terrible idea. And I'm not a morning person, but I do enjoy my, my little tea and my little oatmeal and my little cafe space, you know, and because I had the walk to the place ahead of time, it kind of just it worked really well. That does sound like an ideal writing situation. And just this idea of writing for a half an hour, an hour every day. I think some people think writing is so daunting and like, oh, I could never write a book. But if you just sat down and kind of like wrote a little every day, you know, eventually you might have a book. Yeah, I mean, it was it was probably about 18 months uh, of writing. And, and there was a period, there was a period toward the end where I was teaching in the mornings, and I, I wasn't able to write every every morning. But you know, I think if I were writing absolutely every morning, you know, I could get through that much in about 16 months. Anyway, so that that was my my sort of physical process in terms of the the process. Otherwise, I, I, I do a lot of outlining. I had a very detailed outline before I started, but I also tend to just kind of write in sequence. I, I find it hard to maintain tone if I'm kind of jumping around a piece. I, it's easier to just kind of go all in one fell swoop, I guess. Yeah. So you like to write from start to finish, basically, more or less. Yeah. So one of the things I really wanted to ask you about is you've got in your book these extremely complicated 
scientific concepts. And then you've got readers like myself who are not, you know, schooled, credentialed scientists. How do you go about making these things accessible for a larger audience? Yeah, so sometimes some of it's really hard. <laughs> so there are some topics that are that are very difficult to get across. You know, in in my book, I cover things like entropy, uh, symmetries, uh, gravitational potentials, uh, the early universe, um, you know, unification of forces, and uh, none of those are simple for me. I, I just kind of I try what I try and do is I try and find some kind of visual that can kind of cement, you know, get, have it be a starting point, and then I I try and use a lot of metaphor, but. I try and be very careful with metaphor as well because I don't want to accidentally portray something as being more like that metaphor than it is. You know, so you you got to be a little careful not to mislead with those things. But yeah, I use a lot of metaphors, a lot of visuals, and then I just kind of keep iterating until until I feel like it's it's kind of sinking in. There are some places where it does get really complicated, and there are a couple of places where. I kind of put some pacing into the text and I say, you know, kind of bear with me, like this is, this is complicated, but we're going to, you know, we're going to walk through this and it, it'll be fine, you know? So, and I feel like that's, that's sort of cheating, but what I don't want is for people to like kind of have their eyes glaze, glaze over and, and skip past something or give up on the book entirely because they're overwhelmed. I want to acknowledge that like, you're, we're going to have to stop and think about this and this is going to take some effort but we'll get there and it's not beyond you, you know? Because I, I think that one of the things that, that's most challenging about writing about theoretical physics is that people give up, um, you know, and and people will give up, you know, not because the topic is necessarily more complicated, you know, too complicated for them, but they'll give up because they assume that it's too complicated. This comes up anytime you talk about math or whatever, like people will often sort of they they don't want to feel stupid, right? And so so they they don't want to dig into something where at the end of it they're going to be like I didn't understand. And so you have to put in a lot of effort to convince people that that they will understand at the end and to, you know, announce that, you know, they they might have to stop and think about it for a bit, but it's not beyond them. And and it's a really that's a really tricky thing because I mean, some people don't want to stop and think about it. And so that's, you know, sometimes you do have to kind of hold hands, hold people's hands through the whole thing. But but also, you know, it's it's a vulnerable place to get into to say, I'm going to try to, you know, stretch my brain. I'm going to try to grasp this thing that I know is difficult. You know, people are putting their trust in you. <laughs> they, you're not going to get get them into a situation where they feel stupid, you know, and you, you just don't want anybody to, to be in that position. So I think that that managing that, like managing the, the the way that people expect it to be laid out, and signaling to people that it's that it's okay to to try is, is difficult, and and that's that's part of why I use so much uh, humor in in my writing, and why I you know am perfectly happy to have a section in all caps or something to to emphasize you know that this is a big deal, or or you know I'll acknowledge something is really weird and mind bending because I I want to to have that kind of rapport with the reader where where they'll feel like it's okay to make that effort. Mm, well, that's great because you want that with a, a writer is you want to feel like you're in good hands, that you can trust the writer to take you where you need to go. You can understand this. I really like that approach of like, bear with me. 
we'll get through this. I can take you there. Like, I'll help you with this, I think is a really powerful way to connect with people who, like you say, they don't, they want to learn, but they don't want to feel stupid. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course this comes up in teaching a lot as well, right? Like um, a lot of the most challenging interactions with students will be when you know that they, they have the capacity to, to get through something, but they've, they've stopped themselves from trying because it's too upsetting to go through that process. And you, you have to work sometimes really hard with the student to to get them to make the effort when when something feels like it's beyond them. So I think that you know, with teaching, you, 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 get, you get a similar thing. Right. You get practice in explaining to people, these con- the, uh, to a wide audience, these complicated concepts. Um, you mentioned the humor, the all caps and everything. Another thing I noticed about your book was a lot of sort of literary references and that kind of thing. What inspired you to include those? Uh, that's just stuff I like to read. <laughs> I think I really like having these little—I guess they're called epigrams—the the little um, quotes at the beginnings of chapters to sort of set the tone. I enjoy that when I'm reading a, a book. I like uh, having that little—I don't know—a little flavor of a of a different kind of story to to get you into the mindset of of where the where the story is going. And so, you know, in in my book, I I, I thought really carefully about what to put in those um, those chapter headings. Um, and then I had references throughout the throughout the book that were just, you know, things that that struck me as relevant or that reminded me of, of something that was um, that I was talking about. And, and that's where my mind went when I was thinking of that. I mean, I had a like I had a big section about a particular Star Trek The Next Generation episode in, in one of my chapters because it, it felt like that w- like when I thought about that topic, it brought up my memory of that episode. And, and I felt like it was kind of a useful a useful sort of connecting point. But yeah, I mean, the the stuff that I reference in, in the book is mostly just stuff I like to read. So. Sure. So you're thinking about yourself as a reader and what you would want. Yeah. If you were reading this book. I like bringing in some of my favorite authors to to some of the, you know, the chapter headings and, and kind of being able to kind of pay tribute to some of the stuff that they've written. A lot of science fiction is in there. Fantastic. So speaking of audience, my last question is, how do you know... You know, what what do you use to judge whether your writing is successful? Like what kinds of metrics or responses or anything are you looking for to get a sense of like that you have accomplished what you wanted to accomplish? Yeah. uh, So I don't really have metrics per se. Like I know that there are sales numbers for my book, but book sales are so opaque to me. I don't know what a good number is. I don't even know the sales numbers for my book actually are because it's not easy to get that information. So in principle, there is there is data there, but I, I don't find it useful. In general, with my writing, uh, I find social media feedback to be very, very useful. So for example, I wrote an article recently for the BBC Science Focus magazine about the epoch of reionization when, when the stars turn on, turn on enough to ionize the gas in the universe. And I, I kind of used a different writing style in that article. I, I tried to make it a little bit more poetic, a little bit more sort of visually striking, just for fun, just to try something new. And when I when I sent it to my editor, I was like, yeah, I don't know if this is going to work. This is a different sort of style, but, you know. And he was like, oh, well, we'll see how the readers feel about it. And then when I posted it on Twitter, I just got so many responses with people saying, oh, I love this. This is really cool. This is like science poetry. This is amazing. You know, so, and and uh, I got a much stronger response than I had for previous articles uh, in that series. And so, you know, that kind of gave me a, an impression of like how people are responding to it. So it's, it's mostly like, I, I find Twitter to be a, a fantastic resource for, for getting responses to writing because people will 
people will share what they feel very directly and very quickly. I don't think I get, I don't think it's a great way to get like criticism. I think that if, if somebody read a piece of mine and found it meh, they just wouldn't say anything. But I do, I do get a good feeling in the other direction of like what, what people really connect with. Then they'll share it and they'll, you know, and, and that'll be another piece, another way I know that, um, that it's, it's connecting with people. The thing that people do do very well on Twitter is that they will ask questions if they're confused about something. So if I, if I share something or if I write something that is unclear, I will know very, very quickly that it's unclear because I will get a lot of questions. <laughs> and so that's, that is, is a very useful metric where, um, you know, people are not going to hold back if they, if I'm on there and they know I'm on there and they want to know something they will ask. And, and that can often be the clue that what I wrote was not clear or accessible enough. That's fantastic. Well, I'm glad someone is getting a benefit out of Twitter. So that's great. I'm glad <laughs> because it is, I mean, for all of the awful things with social media, it does give you this amazing connection with your readers that just didn't used to exist. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really fantastic for that. I, aside from Twitter, you know, I occasionally get emails from people, but it's, it's rare. And when I do, they're, you know, usually it's like, oh, your book was great. Here's my theory of the universe. <laughs> so it's not, you know, it's not quite, it's not really that useful. But yeah, almost all the feedback I've gotten is, for, is via Twitter and I, I really appreciated it. All right. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you about your writing and your work and good luck on the next book and uh, the continued articles. Thanks so much for talking with me today. Sure. Happy to chat. Thank you. <laughs>